One of the few silver linings of this pandemic is that I've reconnected with a bunch of old friends. Last weekend, I had a video call with someone I hadn't spoken to in over two years. These days, we mostly communicate by liking each other's posts on social media. We ended up talking for two hours, laughed hysterically, and both cried. Halfway through, my friend's boyfriend joined the call too. He's been practicing guitar, so the two of them performed a song for me, one by John Prine, who died of COVID this year. Neither my friend nor her boyfriend are really musicians, but it made me smile. And since then, I've been learning the song on the ukulele, so I can play it with them next time we speak. I'm pretty bad, but that's not the point. It's just an opportunity to stay in touch. I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. This week, we'll hear about an inhalable drug that might help keep COVID patients off of ventilators. We'll also explore the bizarre history of dexamethasone, the 60-year-old drug that may lower the COVID death rate. But first, we're going to talk about monoclonal antibodies, laboratory-grown antibodies that could neutralize the coronavirus in sick patients, or possibly even prevent infection. We talked a little bit about this type of treatment in an early episode of Podcast 19, but now clinical trials are underway. The University of North Carolina School of Medicine's Dr. Myron Cohen is an expert on monoclonal antibodies. He's one of the leaders of the COVID-19 Prevention Trials Network, an NIH-backed effort that's helping coordinate clinical trials for COVID vaccines and monoclonal antibodies. I asked Dr. Cohen to explain what monoclonal antibodies are. Everyone's received vaccines, and when they get a vaccine, they're, they're participating in a process called active immunity. And what a vaccine is doing is you put the vaccine shot in somebody's arm, and there's parts of a virus or something else in the vaccine, and the immune system sees it, and it starts making antibodies against the thing. By the thing here, Dr. Cohen means different parts of the virus. An antibody will only bind to one specific part of one specific viral molecule. And your body makes lots of different antibodies to attack the virus in different ways. Some of those antibodies work really well, others not so well. And the cells that make the antibodies are called B cells. And one B cell can only make one type of antibody. We call this active immunity because your body learns how to fight off a virus and will remember to deploy those very specific antibodies if you ever get infected in the future. Now, it turns out that a long time ago, now probably two decades ago, Nobel Prize winning study showed you could isolate a B cell, one of those B cells. It turned out each B cell would make one antibody. And you could take the B cell and put it in a test tube and grow it up in larger concentration, and now you got a whole bunch of B cells making one antibody. And guess what you called the one antibody? You called it a monoclonal antibody. One clone of an antibody. That's a monoclonal antibody. In the past, scientists have isolated B cells that make antibodies that bind specifically to cancer cells or inflammatory proteins. And today, monoclonal antibodies are mostly used to fight those types of illnesses. 
We've had other types of tools to fight infectious diseases, like antibiotics and vaccines. So monoclonal antibodies weren't as high priority. But in the last few years, I would say some frustration with our ability to make an HIV vaccine effectively also led to us to consider the possibility of a monoclonal antibody or a combination of monoclonal antibodies to be used for HIV. So we started working very aggressively on monoclonal antibodies in HIV. That also sets the stage for COVID. Today, scientists are working to identify antibodies that bind to specific parts of COVID's spike protein. The spike protein allows the virus to enter human cells, where it replicates. If the antibody can block replication, it effectively neutralizes the virus. The idea is that monoclonal antibodies could be given either as a treatment for sick patients or as a preventive measure for people with a high risk of exposure, like healthcare workers. Now, if you've been following the news closely, you probably know that there's a similar treatment out there called convalescent plasma. Hospitals are asking recovered COVID patients to donate their plasma, which is filled with protective antibodies. And the more severe the infection, the more stuff there is in the convalescent plasma. So what happened was the person who got COVID had B cells attacking COVID all over the place. And so the convalescent plasma can be chock full of antibodies directed against different parts of COVID-19. So the good news about the convalescent plasma is you can get it and you can give it. The bad news is it's hard to know exactly what's in it. It's not one antibody. So while the convalescent plasma idea is a great bridging idea, the better idea is to make a monoclonal antibody against exactly what you want. Monoclonal antibodies might be a great short-term solution to protect people from COVID. They provide what scientists call passive immunity. You're using pre-made antibodies to fight off the infection, but your own B cells don't know how to make them. After a few weeks or months, the effects wear off. In order to teach your body how to fight off the virus on its own, in other words, create the active immunity we talked about earlier, you need a vaccine. Once we actually have a vaccine, does that make the need for monoclonal antibodies obsolete? No, not at all, because there are going to be situations where you need immediate immunity, and I can give you, you know, pretty perfect examples. We usually think of those now as post-exposure prophylaxis. You think you've been exposed to a rabid animal. We give you a rabies vaccine, but at the same time, we start giving you rabies immune globulin. Right. If you get bitten by a rabid raccoon, you're given antibodies that neutralize rabies because they work really quickly. The, the speed with which a passive immunity strategy works will always leave a space where we need passive immunity. Assuming this goes through clinical trials, it works great, it's safe, why wouldn't we just try to give it to everybody? Well, these kind of antibodies we could potentially give to the highest risk people, but I, I think it's not practical to think of this as an alternative to vaccination. Now, the treatment part, we probably would give to everyone. So if monoclonals work for treatment, it's like you go to the doctor's office and instead of raging with fear and waiting in line hours for testing, they say, oh, you've got COVID, here's your monoclonal, see you next year for your checkup. Dr. Cohen told me that he's optimistic about finding a monoclonal antibody or a combination of antibodies that will work for COVID. Scientists have already tested some of these antibodies in the lab and in animals to see if they neutralize the virus. And they've also already done some safety trials in humans. 
The next step is to run large randomized controlled trials to see if they actually work in humans. Two companies then have received permission to proceed to use their drugs for prevention and for treatment. One of the prevention trials has already started, um, uh, what's called the household study, where you go take somebody who's infected living in a household and you try and pre prevent infection in all the other people in the household. Um, and another uh, trial will start, I think, this week or next week in people uh, living in uh, skilled nursing facilities at high risk for COVID. I want to talk about potential drawbacks to, to this to monoclonal antibodies for COVID. One thing I've read about is something called antibody-mediated enhancement. Um, can you explain what that is and if that's a concern? So antibody-mediated enhancement is, an ob is, a, is a phenomenon that occurs when, for some infections, antibodies can make the infection worse. And, and they can do that, and mostly they do that by bringing in uh, additional immunocytes that cause more inflammation and more harm. Immunocytes, by the way, are immune cells that fight infections but can also cause inflammation. It was believed to have been observed in one of the other SARS infections, but that other SARS infection was a very different kind of infection. Um, so along those lines, as these monoclonals have been developed, a tremendous amount of attention has been devoted to proving that the antibodies that are generated are, are very unlikely to cause any enhancement. So that you can do a whole bunch of things before you ever start with humans to, to demonstrate you're not going to cause enhancement. That's already been done. And then as the trials go forward, it'll be looked at very carefully to or further reassure ourselves that the antibodies will not cause enhancement uh, by, by causing m m a worse disease uh, and further disease progression and further inflammation. It doesn't seem likely that antibody-dependent uh, enhancement is, is, is going to be observed, but it'll be f carefully looked for. How quickly do you think we might have a monoclonal antibody available um, for the public? So the, the, the experiments are much faster and much smaller. Um, the, the vaccine trials are geared to have a minimum of 30,000 people per trial. And each vaccine trial is likely to have two shots over about 14 days. And so the full benefit of then the vaccine won't be realized for a month or two months. So right there, you're stretching it out. But the monoclonal trials, what you're giving is what you get right then. What Dr. Cohen means is that if the antibodies work, they'll work right away. So the trials will go faster. Also, you're only testing them on people who you know are sick or will definitely be exposed to the virus because they work in a high-risk place or are living with a sick family member. That's different than a vaccine, where you're giving the shot to healthy people who may or may not ever get exposed to the virus at all. That's why you need so many people in vaccine trials. So um, if they work, we might know that they work in the early fall. Um, and if they work, they would receive some sort of an authorization very quickly. Perhaps not full licensure, but some sort of an authorization for use, I think, very quickly. Despite all his optimism, Dr. Cohen repeated multiple times that monoclonal antibodies are not the only answer to getting back to life as usual. In fact, neither are vaccines. I want to reiterate combination prevention. It, even if, There's no vaccine trial that's starting that asks for 100% efficacy. They're asking for 50% efficacy, roughly. So therefore, masks and hygiene and some of the other things we're doing, they're going to have to complement vaccines. And treatment is going to have to complement vaccines. We're not just escaping this with a magic bullet.
As Dr. Cohen said, we're going to need treatments as well as vaccines to fight COVID-19. One potential treatment is dexamethasone, a common cheap steroid that's shown promise in the sickest COVID patients. The results of the first large trial into dexamethasone were finally published this month. Science writer and 538 contributor Sarah Reardon has been exploring the drug's history and reporting on the newest results. Yes, this was a huge study um, out of the UK. It was called the Recovery Trial. And what they did was they gave dexamethasone to about 2,000 patients who were very sick in the hospital with COVID, were on ventilators receiving oxygen. And they compared these patients' outcomes to more than 4,000 patients who weren't receiving dexamethasone. And what they found was that the risk of death was lowered by one-third if you were receiving dexamethasone. So it's really the first time that anyone has found a treatment for COVID that really reduces the likelihood of of dying from it. And I spoke with one of the authors of this study. His name is Martin Landry, and he is a professor at the University of Oxford. Uh, He was one of the co-authors on this study. I think we've got a a pretty clear answer for dexamethasone. In patients who are on ventilators or patients who need oxygen, then dexamethasone is effective uh, in reducing the risk of dying, which of course is the most important thing, uh, and, if it, and doing that regardless of the other health conditions the patient might or might not have. I know dexamethasone's been around for a while, so why did scientists look to it as a potential treatment for COVID? Uh, dexamethasone was developed about 60 years ago. Um, it's a synthetic steroid uh, made to mimic some of the natural steroids that our body uses to um, moderate the immune response against um, pathogens. Right. Steroids are often used to lower inflammation in certain conditions. When you're infected with a pathogen like the coronavirus, the body ramps up its immune system to start fighting off the virus. And Usually that works, but for some people, the immune system kind of goes overboard and starts causing really dangerous amounts of inflammation in the lungs, um, other reactions from the body. Um, And so that response actually becomes more dangerous than the virus itself in these patients um, who are probably hospitalized at that point. And so uh, researchers thought that maybe dexamethasone, because it's been so effective in reducing inflammation, might be useful for this purpose in damping down that response. How widespread is its use in COVID patients now? It's become a standard of care a a lot of places in the UK in particular, which is where that um, big study was done. Um, It's being given routinely to um, very sick COVID patients in the hospital. Um, It's being pretty widely used in the the US as well, um, a number of other countries, but only for very sick patients. It's not given to people who are not in a state of inflammation, who don't have the um, body overreacting to the virus. Why can't we use it in everybody? In people with mild disease, then you need a fully functioning immune system to combat the virus. Um, That's what the immune system is there for. What were some early uses for dexamethasone? Yeah, so it was used um, in a lot of diseases, um, like arthritis, asthma, for instance. One of the interesting early uses for it was actually in psychiatry. Um, It was used in something called the dexamethasone suppression test. And this was a way to look for um, patients who were depressed to try and figure out if they had a certain subtype of depression called melancholia, which makes people more um, likely to attempt suicide. 
In people with melancholia, produce too much cortisol, which is a natural steroid. I actually spoke with uh, Dr. Edward Shorter from the University of Toronto, who's a medical historian there, and he told me a little bit about how this test used to work. One night in, in hospital, they will measure your cortisol level and then give you an injection, one or two milligrams of dexamethasone. And then 24 hours later, they measure your cortisol levels again. And if your cortisol levels are, are low, that means that whatever you've got is probably not melancholia. If they remain high, that means that you haven't suppressed uh, the, the steroid, uh, that you probably have melancholic illness. And that's a very important clinical finding. So is that test still used today? Uh, no, it's not. So in the, in the 1980s, it stopped really being used because we, the profession of psychiatry wasn't really recognizing melancholia as a subtype of depression anymore. And if you just use the dexamethasone suppression test to look for depression overall, it doesn't really work that well. So did the drug just like sit on a dusty shelf in a back room of a lab somewhere between the time it was used as this psychological test and now? Uh, no, not at all. It's been very widely used for all sorts of things. It's been used as an anti-inflammatory and some of the things I mentioned before, when the immune system's overreacting, it'll help damp down those responses. Another use that's kind of a little more niche is in high altitude sickness. Eric Swenson is a pulmonologist at the University of Washington. People with severe COVID get quite hypoxemic or run low oxygen levels. And of course, that's the problem at high altitude. That's the central problem at high altitude is that if you get hypoxemic enough, then clearly the brain and other organs suffer. And dexamethasone has worked uh, beautifully. It's not 100%, but it's saved people's lives, no doubt by reducing the degree of brain swelling. And another more modern use for it um, is in premature infants. Um, so if you have a mother who's likely to give birth to a baby very preterm, that baby's lungs probably haven't developed sufficiently uh, to handle actually breathing. And so what if you inject that mother with dexamethasone before she's going to give birth, that can actually speed up the development of the baby's lungs and start and get them to start maturing um, so that once that baby's born, it can actually start um, handling breathing more quickly. And I spoke to a public health expert named Joy Lawn at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in the UK about the history of dexamethasone's use in uh, preterm labor. It's much better for them and much more cost effective than attaching them to aggressive machines that also have a risk of damaging their lungs long term. If you had a, a woman who's in preterm labor in a high income country and you didn't give dexamethasone, you would end up in court. It's such a standard of care that you would be sued if you didn't do it. So cool. So from psychiatry to newborns to COVID. So what additional research needs to be done on the drug for its use in coronavirus patients at this point? Um, we know a lot about this drug. We know about the side effects. We know um, what any dangers of it might be because it has been studied so long in so many different types of people. Um, the big remaining questions the authors told me are really about how it can be used in combination with other drugs now. Um, now that we've got remdesivir, for instance, we've 
which is the drug that seems to um, uh, lower the amount of time someone has to stay in the hospital, um, whether it works if you're getting a um, plasma, if you're getting antibodies from someone who has had um, COVID already, with any other number of treatments that are in development for treating COVID, whether they would um, help bolster the effects of dexamethasone or whether the two drugs could interact and not end up helping the patient. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. And now for a little good news. Scientists in the UK say that an inhalable drug could reduce serious illness in COVID patients by 79%. People who got the drug were reportedly less likely to die or be put on a ventilator. Now, these are preliminary reports. There's no published data on this yet, so take these findings with a grain of salt. The drug is a type of interferon. Interferons are proteins your cells naturally make when they're under attack by a virus. They can help trigger an immune response and also alert other cells to the presence of an invader. And while it's a bit debated in the scientific community, there's been some evidence that the coronavirus actually suppresses interferons, which might help lead to the runaway inflammation we see in seriously ill COVID patients. Different types of interferons are already used to treat illnesses like cancer, hepatitis, and multiple sclerosis. Now, labs in the US and UK have started looking into using interferons to treat or even prevent COVID infections. The newest findings come from a lab called Synergen. In a study of 101 COVID patients, the scientists gave half of the patients an inhalable form of an interferon called interferon beta. The other half got a placebo. And neither the patients nor the scientists knew who got the treatment until the study ended. Synergen says that not only did the drug reduce the incidence of serious illness, but patients were more than twice as likely to fully recover after 28 days. Earlier, when we talked about dexamethasone, we mentioned that it should only be used in seriously ill patients. Interferons, on the other hand, might prevent serious illness. Again, these findings haven't been published or vetted by outside scientists, and this was a fairly small study. But if the results prove true, interferons might become an important tool to keep COVID patients out of the ICU. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Jake Arlo. Our executive producer, Chadwick Matlin, is off this week, so the wonderful Maggie Kurth filled in for him. Okay, I'm off to practice the ukulele. Uh Uh-oh, it's out of tune. (laughs)